0: instead of what's printed in the bulletin is Hebrews 4. In the Pew Bible, that would be on pages 804 and 805. I'll be reading from the Living Bible original version, starting at chapter 2, verse 1, and going through verse 11. Is there any such thing as Christians cheering each other up Do you love me enough to want to help me? Does it mean anything to you that we are brothers in the Lord, sharing the same spirit? Are your hearts tender and sympathetic at all? Then make me truly happy by loving each other and agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, working together with one heart and mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't live to make a good impression on others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourself. Don't just think about your own affairs, but be interested in others too in what they are doing. Your attitude should be the kind that was shown us by Jesus Christ, who, though he was God, did not demand and cling to his rights as God, but laid aside his mighty power and glory, taking the disguise of a slave and becoming like men. And he humbled himself even further, going so far as actually to die a criminal's death on a cross. Yet it was because of this that God raised him up to the heights of heaven and gave him a name which is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father.
1: Well, good morning, everyone. Happy 4th of July. I know that we have a lot of people here, and we have a lot of people who are traveling. Some people are up at the cabin. I know of more than one wedding going on this weekend. That is a very very busy weekend in the life of our church. So we're glad to have you here, those of, of you that are joining us person. And those of us that are joining online, we're glad that you have joined us as well. You can wave at your screen. We're waving back at you. If you can only see me, there's other people waving here. Fourth of July was always a fun time for me when I was a kid. It was uh, always spent at family camp on the campground where my uh, grandparents lived. And my grandfather served for 33 years in the Navy Reserve, so it was a big deal to hang the flag on the side of the cottage every Fourth of July. And the kids got to decorate their bikes, and we would do a bike parade for all the kids around the circle in the middle. And there were always hamburgers and hot dogs. So whether today is a day of a celebration for you or a day that is complicated, um, we are here with you to celebrate and process all of those things. But anyways, this morning, um, I'm here to bring you the kids' message, and today we're going to be talking about Jesus. Anybody heard of him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> when I asked Pastor Corey what the message was about, that's all he told me, Jesus. I said, wow, that's, that's very clear. We talk about Jesus all the time. What is it about Jesus we're going to be talking about today? Well, there's a lot that we could talk about, but we're going to be talking about who Jesus is. And so I thought one of the best ways to do that is to look at a story from the Bible, a true piece of history, something that really happened in John chapter 11. And this is where Jesus has an interaction with some really good friends of his. You know, Jesus was a lot like us when he was on earth. He liked to hang out with people. And he had friends just like you and me. And the friends in this chapter are Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Now, usually you hear of at least Mary and Martha together, or the three of them, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And whenever I see them, I like to think of my husband, Andrew, because there's Andrew, and he has two sisters, Lindsay and Diana. So it's one boy, two girls, just like Lazarus, Mary and Martha. And they hang out a lot together. They're a lot of fun together. There's a lot of people who are friends with all three of them, because all together they're a lot of fun. So when I think of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, I think of Andrew and Lindsay and Diana, just a fun group of people, a fun group of siblings to hang out with. So they show up throughout the Bible, especially in the books that talk about Jesus, Um, but in this particular story, it's kind of sad. See, Lazarus had gotten sick, and Mary and Martha knew that Jesus had the power to make their sick brother better, and so they sent him a message and said, Jesus, Lazarus is sick. Come help us. Come help him. And Jesus does kind of a strange thing, In verse 5 of this chapter, it says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, and so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. Now that doesn't sound like a thing that you would do if you love somebody. You got a message that they were sick and they need help, and Jesus just waits around for two days. But just like we saw that Jesus is like us in that he had friends like Lazarus and Mary and Martha, just a few verses later, we can see that Jesus is also God at the same time because Jesus knew something that Mary and Martha and Lazarus didn't know. And he did something that they had a hard time understanding. God does that a lot. His word says that his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So there are things that God does sometimes that don't make a whole lot of sense to us, especially until like after it's already done and we can look back at it. So Lazarus eventually dies. Jesus' friend, he dies. And by the time that Jesus gets to their house, he had already been dead for four whole days. So when Jesus finally shows up, Martha's the first one that comes up to him. And Martha tells him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She's sad. She's asking Jesus questions. And this is again where we can see that Jesus is fully God because he says some kind of confusing things to her. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Now, I would be confused by this if I were Martha. I, I, I just want Jesus to help me. I, want, I, I don't understand what it is that Jesus is saying, but Jesus is setting things up for another thing that only God can do. But before we get there, there's another important thing to notice in this story. After Jesus talks to Martha, next he runs into Mary, Lazarus's other brother—other sister, excuse me. It says, When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now catch this part. It says, When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping— He was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Jesus was sad. He was sad with his friend, just like sometimes you are sad with your friends when something sad happens. And just one verse later, it says, Jesus wept. Jesus was a human being just like you and me. He felt sad and he cried because his friend had died. And he could see his other friends were hurting too. But then something happened where we see again that Jesus is 100% God. Because it says, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance, and he said, take away the stone. And Martha says, um, Lord, um, he's been dead for four days. It smells in there. <laughs> Are you sure you want us to move that rock? I don't know if you know that, but after, after people have died, it starts to smell, and you just that's not a good smell. So Jesus said, move it away anyways. And so they took away the stone, and Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I, knew that you, I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said this, Jesus called out in a loud, loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And when he said this, the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped in strips of linen and cloth around his face, It was a miracle. Lazarus had been dead four whole days. He was still wrapped in all those grave clothes when he came out. But Jesus, because he's 100% God, had the power to bring him back from the dead. There's all kinds of things that we see in God's word, ways that we can see that Jesus was a human being just like us. He got hungry. He cried. He slept. He did all kinds of human things. But he was also God because he could do amazing, incredible miracles that nobody else could do. And Jesus also had the power to raise people from the dead, just like Lazarus. There's a lot that we can learn about Jesus and even more that we're going to talk about this morning. We know that Jesus is our king, he's our savior and our lord. He's fully God and he's fully man and he shows us who God is and who we're meant to be. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning.
2: Well, I want to start out with, I guess, that question. Who is Jesus to you? That's a a question that my mentor asked me very early on in our relationship, and it's probably one that you have heard people ask before as well. And perhaps it is the ultimate question for any of us, because all of us one day are going to have to stand before God, and our answer to that question is going to make a big difference, in fact, make all the difference in what happens for eternity. So it's an important question, who is Jesus to you? But it's actually not the most important question, or not not the first question that we have to answer, because Jesus is not just anything that we want him to be. For some people, of course, Jesus is a get-out-of-hell-free card, and that's just about it. For other people, uh, he's a good example or a good moral teacher, but nothing more For others, Jesus is just about anything that you want him to be, a a sort of psychological uh, soft pillow that uh, makes you feel better about yourself. And so oftentimes those are the questions that you, or the answers that you get when you ask the question, who is Jesus to you? But actually the first question that we have to ask is, is who is Jesus really? Because Jesus deserves to be able to define himself. Now, this summer, of course, we are working our way through basic Christian doctrine, trying to stick with what all Christians at all times throughout history have believed. And, and in the first week, we mentioned the Apostles' Creed. In fact, we looked at the very first line of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And we're not sticking necessarily strictly to the Apostles' Creed, but I thought we would go back to it again today, since at least half of the Apostles' Creed is about Jesus And we are talking about Jesus today. And it's, uh, you know, it spends more time outlining belief in Jesus than any other part of Christian doctrine. Now, When it was first written, the Apostles' Creed wasn't called the Apostles' Creed. In fact, over time, a legend developed that the disciples got together in a room and each one wrote one line of the the creed, and that's why it was called the Apostles' Creed. But actually, the legend isn't true. It was something that was written by church leaders in about 150 A.D., um, long after the apostles were gone. And, And the Apostles' Creed is not about... The, uh, about God in general. It's about a very specific God. It's about the Christian God, the God of Jesus Christ. And, uh, and it's, so it's Christ-focused from beginning to end, and so it's fitting that half of the Apostles' Creed focuses on Jesus himself. Okay, so let's just to remind you here of what it says, I'm going to go through the first part of the Apostles' Creed just so you can see what it says. Okay, it says this, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. That's the one that we covered in uh, in the first week. And then we're going to cover the rest of this part today. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. All right, now this is what uh, early Christians wrote. This is what was really important to them in 150 AD. Now, I think if, if a lot of Christians were, were writing uh, this section, this creed today, this section would look a lot different. In fact, my guess is the creed would probably sound something like this. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his Son, my personal Savior, who forgave my sins by dying in my place. And the truth of the matter is, is that would not be wrong, not at all. Nothing wrong with that statement. In fact, it's a true statement as far as that goes. And Jesus as Savior is really the primary way we think about Jesus today, But the truth of the matter is, is if you look in Scripture and if you look in the creeds, it's actually not enough. The fact is, that's not what the early Christians wrote. And not because they didn't believe that Jesus was their Savior, they most certainly did. It's just that Jesus as my personal Savior doesn't capture everything that Jesus was about. You see, for early Christians, and I think if you look through the New Testament, the primary image of Jesus was Jesus is Lord. And here's the reason why. See, in our lifetimes, we have lived in a country that many people have seen as synonymous with Christianity, and even if you don't see it as synonymous with Christianity, you see that we have the freedom of Christian beliefs, or at least things that are largely in line with Christian belief. But that was not the case in the Roman Empire at the time that the creeds were written and the time that the New Testament was written. Now, the Romans didn't really know who Christians were at the time. It was brand new. And in fact, they saw Christianity as a small sect of Judaism. And all they knew about Judaism really was that they refused to worship the Roman gods and especially refused to worship the emperor. And of course, that didn't sit very well with the Roman emperor. Uh, Christians then were considered to be atheists because they didn't believe in all of the Roman gods. They just believed in the one. And they were considered to be unpatriotic and disloyal to the emperor. And so you can imagine that things would start to come to a head when Emperor Domitian took the title of Curios, which means Lord. He saw himself as the supreme authority over all the other powers that demanded loyalty. And even after Domitian, most emperors then claimed the title of Lord. And it was very common for people to shout, Caesar is Lord. And it was in this environment that the Apostles' Creed was written. And so early baptisms, uh, uh, when when, uh, Christians were baptized, the early uh, confessions were, Jesus is Lord. And that was a subversive statement that was essentially a pledge of allegiance to Jesus rather than the emperor or the Roman Empire. In fact, we say, Jesus Christ is Lord. And what does Christ mean? It's the word for anointed one or king. And so when we say that, we say Jesus is King and Lord. He is our ultimate authority over everyone else. Now, of course, when I talk about this, it probably brings up the fact that today is the 4th of July, a time when we celebrate Independence Day and celebrate the freedoms that we enjoy as our country. And so the idea of Jesus being Lord can bring up some questions about ultimate loyalty And how I approach that is I say that I think it's more than appropriate for us to appreciate the freedoms that we've been given in our country. Uh, We can appreciate the high stated ideals that we have as a country that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with inalienable rights. And that's something that I think all of us can say amen to because I think it's biblical. Um, and, uh, And frankly, our country has given us very much, and I think it's okay for us to be grateful for that. But at the same time, as believers, our ultimate allegiance is to King Jesus and the ideals of Scripture, and so all other allegiances should pale in comparison. And like the early Christians, we should be able to say that Jesus is Lord, not the President. That we should be able to say Jesus is Lord, not our Constitution, right? And and we should be able to say that Jesus is Lord above all things in our life. So while we can appreciate the good things that our country has given us, appreciate being a part of our nation, it shouldn't be any trouble for us either to acknowledge that even our own country has not always lived up to the ideals that we profess. And so as believers, I think it's okay for us to to work for a country that, that does live up to scriptural ideals as we live out our faithfulness to Jesus. Okay? Now, one of the good things that our country has given us is the ability that we have to say in freedom that Jesus is Lord without fear of repercussion. Okay? But for the early Christians, it was risky. One church historian writes this, he says, When Christians dared call Jesus our Lord, they were uttering subversive and perhaps even seditious statements. They were claiming that there was another Lord besides and even above the emperor. This was not tolerated. Christians were ordered to burn incense before the emperor's image and to reject Jesus as Lord. Because they refused to do this, many were tortured and put to death. Now, the statement that Jesus is Lord, I believe, needs to be recentered in our minds today. You see, while Jesus is our Savior, it's not the primary way that that the New Testament describes Jesus. And there are many Christians who believe that it's possible to take Jesus as your Savior, but not as Lord. But this is not a biblical idea. See, Jesus' call is to accept Him as Lord, and we get Him as Savior as part of the package. But the confession of Jesus is Lord is not just a religious confession. He's not just Lord over other gods. He's Lord over everything. It's a confession for all of life. Jesus is Lord over our job. Jesus is Lord over our family, our country, our ethnicity, our political party, our work, our free time. And the list can go on and on and on. No matter what you list, Jesus is Lord over that too. As the saying goes, if Jesus isn't Lord of all, he isn't Lord at all. So while our primary image of Jesus has been Savior for early Christians, their primary image, their primary confession was Jesus as Lord. And that was radical enough. But then comes this idea that uh, is, I think, just as radical today as it was back then, that Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Now, it was for different reasons, though. In today's world, if someone has a hard time with Jesus, it's in believing that Jesus was God. And so when we read this, we might think that, that uh, the virgin birth is included in the creed to highlight the truth that Jesus is divine. But for early Christians, Jesus' divinity was not a problem. It was actually his humanity that was much more controversial. See, there were prom- prominent people in that day, people like Marcion or or some of the Gnostics who believed that the spiritual world was good and the physical world was evil. And so Jesus couldn't possibly have been human because he couldn't associate himself with evil. And so he only looked like a human, but he really was spirit. And so according to one Gnostic legend, Jesus was not born to the Virgin Mary. He just appeared nursing in Mary's arms one day. But the creed, of course, is meant to affirm That Jesus is a hundred percent God and a hundred percent human now other than Jesus and uh, other than Jesus Mary and Pontius Pilate are the only two other individuals who are mentioned in the Creed and so it's easy to see why Mary would make it in after all she's the mother of Jesus but there are certainly more worthy people to be mentioned than Pilate, right? I mean, come on, what did Pilate do anyway? He really was not even that significant of a figure. Uh, and if I were the Apostle Paul, for instance, I would feel kind of slighted here, right? If I were, if I were uh, King David or John the Baptist, you know, don't you think we ought to mention John the Baptist? He came to prepare the way for the Lord. But what did Pilate do? I mean, Pilate didn't really even convict him. He just couldn't make up his mind. And, uh, but yet, he's in there. He did pretty much nothing, and yet we're saying his name in the creed 2,000 years later. Well, I think it makes more sense when you understand that even though Pilate wasn't really all that significant in the story of Jesus, he's basically there as a date. You see, when, uh, when early Christians, uh, they, they couldn't, couldn't really say that Jesus was crucified in A.D. 33 because they didn't really have any kind of numbering system at that time. And so what they did was, was they would put people's names that everyone would know in where you could figure out, okay, this was the time that Jesus existed. And so dates were determined according to rulers that everyone knew. And so what this communicates is that the story of Jesus is not just like one of the recurring pagan myths that religions use to try to explain the annual cycle of seasons, for instance. But it was an actual, one-time, historical event that happened under Pontius Pilate. In essence, we're saying that we believe in Jesus Christ, you know, the one who had to go before Pontius Pilate. Jesus was a real person. He was God-made flesh, situated in a particular time, in a particular place in history. And without that, Jesus is just a part of our imagination. Now, here's where the theology starts to get really deep in the Apostles' Creed, and it highlights the heart of Jesus' ministry. I want you to notice in the next few lines, I want you to notice this progression that happens. It starts out that Jesus is God's unique son. He's born through the Holy Spirit and a human woman, in other words, he becomes human, suffers under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried, and descended into hell. Right, now, this is how they highlight the story of Jesus. He starts in heaven, and he ends in hell. Okay, now, think about what the Romans would have thought about this with Christians saying that Jesus is Lord. They're, they're, you can imagine them just saying, all right, now let me get this straight. All right, this Jesus guy, who you call Lord rather than our uh, emperor, who lives in that huge palace, most powerful man in the whole world, okay, you're calling this Jesus Lord, this same guy that was a criminal that was executed by our emperor, and you're calling him Lord? And the Christians would have to say, yep, pretty much. (laughs) I mean, if you think that's bad, then go on, okay? Not only did he stoop to become human, not only was he crucified or executed as a criminal, but when he died, he went to hell. I mean, think about that for a minute. This is our Lord, right? Pretty much the bottom. That's about as low as you can get, right? Right? Would you make this up? I wouldn't. But of course we know that that's not the end of the story, right? Because Jesus makes his way back up. Because on the third day he rises from the dead and he ascends into heaven. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father and he will come back to judge. Okay? That's the path to being Lord. Okay, And so Christians could say, well, when that happens, they can say, well, where's your emperor now? Right? <laughs> See, these aren't disconnected statements, but they're actually the path that Jesus followed to becoming Lord. And so the question is then, is, you know, what what do we learn from all of this? There, There is one more line in there. Well, I guess come to judge, we have that there, okay? But the question is, is what does this mean? What's kind of the big picture takeaway from all of this? Why does this matter to people who are just trying to pay their rent and put food on the table? Okay, well, I think there are three things that we can look at. When we, when we see this picture of Jesus. The first is this, is that we believe that Jesus gives us the clearest picture of God's character. Jesus gives us the clearest picture of God's character. Romans 1 says that through general revelation, and, and we know that through things like science and psychology and philosophy and that, that we can know some things about God. Okay? We can surmise some things, even other religions. You can know some things about God, but these are not enough. We need a closer look at God. I don't know if you, if, any of you have been to London before? In London, there's a, there's a place called Trafalgar Square. Have you been to Trafalgar Square? Okay. In the, in the middle of Trafalgar Square, um, it commemorates, there, there's a, a, a huge monument, you can see it there, that commemorates an important naval battle in the Napoleonic Wars. And on top of that uh, 170-foot column is a statue of the commander of the British fleet named Horatio Nelson. Now, the problem is, is that when you get up there close, the column is so tall that you can't see Horatio Nelson, right? He's, he's so far up there that you just can't make it out, and people started complaining about this, and so they decided to put a, make an exact replica of the statue and put it a little bit closer to eye level so people can actually see him face to face, okay? Now, use that as a, a sort of rough image for what Jesus does for us. Okay? We can't see God. God is high and exalted. Okay? We can know that he's there through general revelation when we look at nature and all that, but those things can only tell us so much because God is too far, too exalted for us really to be able to see clearly. But what Jesus is, is God at eye level for us. See, Jesus is the perfect reflection of God's character. Colossians 1.15 says that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. And in John 14.7, Jesus himself says, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. You see, while other religions and philosophies might get some things right about God, it's only when God revealed himself in the person of Jesus that we're able to see clearly who God is. But not only does Jesus show us who God is, at the same time, he also shows us what we were created to be, who we are supposed to be. Okay, And I want you to follow me here. Over the course of the last couple of weeks... We've talked about the fact that humans are made in the image of God. Genesis one twenty six, God says, let us make mankind in our image. And if you want to, you know, dive into that, if you didn't get to hear those, you can go back and you can listen to those and we'll talk about, about what it means. But basically, we've said it means two things. First, that we reflect the image of God to creation. And, and thus, all humans are, who are made in the image of God, which is everyone, uh, has incalculable worth. Okay, that's the first thing. The second one is, is that we have a responsibility to live in the world and order the world toward flourishing. The problem is, is that we don't do this well. In fact, a lot of times we don't really even know what that looks like. Okay? Adam and Eve failed at it and now we're often confused as to how we should live. Okay, now, of course, Scripture tells us that, that uh, God sent, uh, the law, God gave Israel the law of Moses, and that helped somewhat, helped us see what we're supposed to be. But uh, even with the law and all of its com- commandments, things got kind of confusing and difficult and really hard to live up to. Well, one of the things that we know today, and I think we've known this for a very long time, is that really the best way to learn is through imitation. Okay, you see someone, and you do what they do, and, uh, and so what we need is not just someone to tell us how we're supposed to live, but what we need is someone who would show us. Okay, if only there were someone who is a perfect representation of who we were supposed to be, we could just look at them and do what they do. Well, praise God, we have that. Because Christianity teaches us that not only is Jesus God, but he is also the perfect human being. When we look at Jesus, we see what we are supposed to be. And in fact, this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about in the passage that Don read earlier from Philippians chapter 2. Let's go through it real quick. Okay? Now, in this passage, the Apostle Paul is instructing believers about the type of character and attitude that we ought to have. Okay, and that will bring unity to the church. And so he writes in verse 3, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Okay, and then he uses Jesus' life as an example. So you see in verse 5, he writes this. He says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Okay, so this is the summary. Okay? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, just do what Jesus does, right? And then what's that attitude? Well, he specifies it in the next, ver- next verses, uh, starting in verse 6. Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. In other words, even though Jesus is God, he gave up the rights and privileges that go along with being God, and he humbled himself by making himself nothing. Okay? Now, think about it. Okay? God in the flesh wasn't born in a palace, wasn't born with any earthly power or authority. He gave up his rights and privileges and power as God to be born to a family who was under the Roman fist, to identify with the low people of society. But even more than that, it says he became obedient even to death on a cross. Okay? Now, do you recognize this? This is the downward path that the creed talks about. It's, you know, not word for word, but it's certainly thought for thought, okay? And what's happening is, is that in doing it, uh, Jesus is setting the example for how we are to live as well. This downward journey in the Apostles' Creed, this is exactly what Paul is telling us here in Philippians chapter two, okay? But then, look at what happens in verse nine. Therefore, God exalted him, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is, what? Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Now, what's amazing about this is that Jesus was God and he still took this downward path that he calls each one of us to take. In fact, listen to... Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 through 28. He says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Okay? The God who humbles himself is a Lord worth following. Okay, now, let me ask you a question. How many of you have done that consistently in your life? How many of you you had done that perfectly? How many of you have even done that well, right? From the other hand, let's ask this. How many of you have oftentimes not lived up to that standard? I certainly can raise my hand there. Any of you ever gone your own way? Have any of you ever taken on lords other than Jesus? Of course we have. We all have. Not only the Bible doesn't just tell us that, but our experience tells us that. We know that's the case. Okay? And because of that, we are damaged goods. We are people who failed to live up to our standard as image bearers. We are guilty. We are stained. We are tarnished. We are broken. However you want to say it, it's probably what we are. And so the question is, what can be done? Well, again, praise God. The Bible tells us that Jesus also is our restorer. You see, even when we want to be like Christ, in our fallen state, we are unable to do it. We're dead. 1 Corinthians 15 says this, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ... All will be made alive. See, the Apostle, Apostles' Creed doesn't tell us exactly how we are made alive, how it all works. It just tells the story of Jesus, that, that somehow Jesus' perfect life, his death and resurrection means that being human doesn't automatically mean being broken. Okay, But here's how it works. See, in the beginning, Adam and Eve had everything that they could ever want. Okay? They had relationship with God. They had each other. They had meaningful work. They had food that would sustain them. Uh, and, uh, but they gave all of that up because they reached. They wanted to become gods. Remember, the, remember how the serpent tempted them. All right, God, God's not trustworthy. He's keeping something from you. If you eat from the tree, you know something? You won't really die, but you'll actually become like him. And, and so God is jealous. Because if you don't lift yourself up, no one will. Right? They were down here, and because of their ungodly ambition, they reached up here, and the result was a fall and death. Okay? But Jesus redeemed us by taking the opposite path. Okay? Adam and Eve gave up eternal life because they wanted to become gods, but Jesus, who is God, becomes human and suffers death so that we might receive life. Through Adam and Eve, humanity was broken. Through Jesus, we are restored. And this is exactly how the early Christians thought about, Jesus, about what Jesus did when, we were, when he descended into hell. Uh, one passage says that he preached to the captives, that he defeated the power of sin and death and made it possible for the image of God to be restored in us. And that doesn't mean that we will never sin again, but it does mean that we don't have to be slaves to sin. See, Jesus was a great example for us to follow, but he wasn't just an example. He identified with us. He adopted us. And through the cross, he destroyed the power of the enemy. And here's one of the cool things, too. In Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says that when he ascended high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. So when he did that, so basically the imagery that the Apostle Paul is using here is a king who goes to battle and routs the opposing king, and, and the opposing king gives him gifts in order to receive mercy. And so then the king goes back to the capital city to this parade or these cheering people and uh, and, he, and he starts to distribute the spoils to all of the people. You can imagine this amazing parade that's going on and what is the gift? Well, the gift is the grace that wipes out our guilt for the past and it gives us the power to live like the people that he created us to be in the first place. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? And when he was done, the creed says that he sat down at the right hand of God, crowned as King and Lord. And because he's there, because of that, we believe that it's only in Jesus where there will finally be justice. See, in the creed, the section on the sun ends with this, from thence he will come to judge the quick and the dead. Okay? Now, when we think about judgment, again, we think about it in terms of uh, personal salvation, and that 's certainly not wrong, okay? Uh, we ask the question, "Will I be okay when I stand before god and that 's a critical question for us, no doubt about it. Um, in fact, I wonder when was the last time you thought about that question but there 's actually even more than that to judgment, okay? because what is the job of the judge? Is it to punish bad people? Yeah, it is, kind of you know somewhat. Is it to repay victims? That's probably part of it as well. But ultimately, the job of the judge is to make things right in the end. Now we know, we can look around at the world and we can see that everything is not as it should be. We can feel it. We know that good people suffer, that bad people victimize others and they seem to get away with it. But because Jesus Christ is Lord, we believe that one day he's going to show up. And when he does, he's going to put everything back in its proper place. And that's going to be good for some people, and it's going to be bad for others, because he will punish the evil, and he will reward the good. He will make oppression cease. He will restore order and bring everything in creation back to what it was intended to be, even us, especially us. So, what do we mean when we say Jesus is Lord? Does it mean that Jesus is our personal Savior? You better believe it. But it's even more than that. When we confess that Jesus is Lord, what we're saying is, is that we will not wait until the judgment to live the way Jesus calls us to live. That right now, today, that we will submit ourselves to, to Jesus, that we will love mercy and justice, that we will humble ourselves and we will not look to our own interests, but to the interests of others, that we will love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves, that we will follow his teachings, that we will keep his example and live in the freedom that he gives through his death and resurrection. That's what it means that Jesus is Lord. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that we have Jesus, who is the ultimate picture of who you are, of who we are called to be, and that even more than that, God, that you became human, that you died and you were resurrected again, so that we could be restored to the image of God, that we can be empowered anew, that we can have gifts to be able to fulfill the calling that you have given each one of us. And I pray that that we would not take that lightly, that we would certainly see you as our Savior, but even more than that, that we would see you as our Lord, who is worth following, who is worth emulating, who is worth putting all of our hope in. God, I pray that our, not just our faith, but our whole life, would be tuned toward you, toward who Jesus modeled and called us to be. That Jesus would be Lord above all else in our life. And as we do that, as we live that way, may we see you even more clearly. We pray this in Jesus' name.
0: You've been listening to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast from Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We hope this week's sermon helped you learn to know and love Jesus more and serve him in your unique place in the world. If you have feedback or questions, get in touch with us by emailing podcast at wakeparkchurch.org.